The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at, at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have you as always. Of course. And another great episode today. Yeah. About some very interesting people. Mm-hmm. The very That's old Hollywood. Uh, old Hollywood. I mean, you know, there's not a of a more glamorous and glitzy, fascinating point in history filled with the most horrible people and murderers. Fully succeeding at all times. (laughs) Oh, I know. God, boy, it really just like, the way the mob got in there and the way all these business guys are just like, if I got enough money, I could do whatever I want. They weren't um, wrong. They weren't wrong. Sadly. It's different now, though, I feel like. You know, like, Hugh Jackman's not in with the mob, I don't think. I doubt it. You know, he seems like that would be that would be a weird. I don't think 
A weird one. As crazy as Jared out. Leto is, I don't think he's actually got any bodies in his basement. Ooh. I guess Jared Leto might not, not be the bets. right uh, <laughs> Let's not put any bets name on for that one. But Seth Rogen, yeah, he probably doesn't have any bodies in his basement. What's he doing problematic besides making weed expensive? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that. Any day now, he'll come out with like some classy blacklight posters or something. <laughs> It'll be great. I'll buy one. <laughs> right. Well, um, oh boy, how's it going? How's the world? How's everybody doing out there? It's holiday season. It's the holiday season. As Christmas they say. comes this time each year. It's, thank you, Beach Boys. <laughs> it sure does. Thank you for being our calendar, Beach Boys. <laughs> the music's playing. The lights are out. The halls are decked. Yeah. The trees are bedazzled, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. What do you call it? Trimmed? Yeah. The trim you a tree. Trim the tree. That's so weird to me. Trimming the tree, I always thought, meant, you know, you like snip all the branches to make them the same length. Well, maybe that was what it was, and they just included decorating oh, in that in that old, you know, because they were like, you got to trim the tree, and then they're like, and we decorate it. So anyway, we're trimming the tree tonight, and it's like all part of, it's all part of it. I grew up, I was telling you this earlier, but I grew up, um, my parents had a lot of friends who were Quaker mm-hmm. and led very rustic lifestyles, very, sure. very of the earth. Very cottage core. Very cottage core. <laughs> um, legit. And I remember my parents had friends who had a Christmas tree that had full-on candles hanging on it, like with little paper sleeves around them, little white skinny candles all over the tree. Fire, wood, all there together. (laughs) I mean, that makes me, it sounds insane. (laughs) I mean, why would you put candles on a tree? I mean, it wasn't, I know pine, but it has a lot of sap, so maybe it doesn't catch fire the same way. Sure. I'm totally, yeah, I have no idea. I mean, you know, it wasn't recklessly just thrown up there. You'd be careful about where you put them and stuff. But I remember hanging candles on that tree. I'm just like- Next to the the... wood stove, you know. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. That's how this house was warmed, was with an iron wood stove. I mean, again, I'd probably put the tree, like, far away from the stove (laughs) if it were me, but- Uh, Nothing was far Far away away. from the wood stove. It (laughs) wasn't that big of a house. Small house. (laughs) That's why a wood stove was able to heat it. All right. Well, before we get started on today's episode, we do have some housekeeping to take care of. Mm -hmm. You know, there comes a point in every podcast's life where maybe you said something wrong Mm -hmm. and you need to get corrected on it. So we are going to go back, 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 back all the way to our second episode Mm -hmm. ever Mm -hmm. for this edition of Corrections Corner. You're such a loser. Yes, we're back with the Berlin Wall. We got an email from Sala who says, Hey guys, I just had to write in because you pronounced the name Aijarita all wrong. Oh no, Uh-oh. we say it so many times. We say it constantly in that episode. <laughs> it's the title and Ooh. we say her name a lot. Whoopsie. She says, Finnish words are pronounced just as they are written. Here's a recording of how it's said correctly. You can repeat after me. So we'd been saying Aijarita, and we should have been saying Eyarita. Yeah. Eyarita. Eyarita. Okay. Um, thank you for sending that. <laughs> I'm glad to know that the correct pronunciation of this name. Uh-huh. However, it must be said, <laughs> when you say <laughs> Finnish names are pronounced just like they're spelled, to us, that means Aijarita. Because true. it's There's spelled a J in it. with a J, which to me... <laughs> But yes, important to remember, right? They say, yeah, 
which yes. is J-A, but they pronounce it Y. So for them, it is pronounced the way it's written. Yeah, how it's it's pronounced, how it's spelled is going to mean something different to people all over the <laughs> to world. everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh. But thank you for sending that in. That yes. was uh, very good to know. They do wrap it up. Love your show. Keep up the good work. Stay safe. Thank you, Sala. Thank you, Sala. That was that's very good to know. I hope we're pronouncing Sala's Sala, name right. I know. Saya? I was like, well, two L's. It could be Saya, like in Spanish. Or who knows? In Finnish, it could be Saja. Saja. Maybe that's <gasps> where their J sound is from. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go with how it's spelled and assume that it's Sala. Thank you for that correction. Very important. We like to get our names right That's at true. this show for sure. That's so. true. Sometimes we get, you know, way more concerned, obviously, about the the non-Western names. Right, you know, right, if we're right. we're in Thailand or China mm-hmm. or or in Africa somewhere, it's like really like we're very concerned. Like this is this is going to be tough for us to say. Yeah. And then we end up screwing it up for the Germans or the French or something. <laughs> <They're> like, <laughs> like, or we get somebody from Wisconsin, we pronounce their <laughs> yeah, name wrong. Like, you know? No. No, it's pronounced like it's spelled. <laughs> Throat wobbler mangrove. <laughs> for all you Monty Python fans out there. Well, fortunately, today our episode is about two names that we all know how to say. Yes, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> because today we are talking about Sammy Davis Jr. and Kim Novak. Mm. In 1957, Sammy Davis Jr. was already well on his way to becoming one of the most popular and beloved entertainers in America. But even though the nation adored his singing, dancing, and acting, they could not handle it when Sammy's name was linked with white leading lady Kim Novak. Uh Uh-oh. It led to hate mail, death threats from the mafia, a sham marriage, so much more shenanigans until America finally got its shit together and made interracial marriage legal in all 50 states with the Supreme Court decision Loving v. Virginia. So let's hear all about Sammy Davis Jr. and Kim Novak and how their affair changed both their lives and the country. Let's go. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show, Ridiculous Romance. A production of iHeartRadio. We had several sources for this uh, story, as usual, but a lot of this comes from a great article by Sam Kashner in Vanity Fair called The Color of Love. So shout out to Sam for a great story. Sam, good job. Sammy Davis Jr. basically began his life on stage. By the time he was three, he was touring with his vaudeville dancer father, Sammy Davis Sr., and his partner, Will Mastin, who they called Sammy Jr.'s uncle. Mm. And they were on the road for all of Sammy's childhood as the Will Mastin Trio. Now, it's hard to discuss anything about anyone black in America without also talking about what it was like to be black in America at the time that they were alive. Sammy Davis Jr. and his father and uncle were touring America from the 1930s through the 1960s. So big surprise, they encountered a lot of terrible racism and discrimination during that entire time. Mm hmm. Uh, most of the clubs they played were segregated. So while they were on stage, the Will Maston Trio was very beloved and exciting. People really liked them. But as soon as the music stopped, they were just some black people who were not even allowed to be inside the building. Damn. And being on tour since the age of three also meant that Sammy Jr. never got a formal education. Like, for example, he was a voracious reader, but he never really learned how to write. 
He could sign his name, but not much else. And he often refused to personalize autographs because he was so embarrassed at his own ability to spell. But he ate and slept and breathed show business. That was his whole thing. Yeah. Bert Boyer, who wrote an essential newspaper column called Boyer's Broadway, became a very close friend of Sammy's. And he said that Sammy was, quote, an entertainment genius. He just understood everything about show business. He just never stopped studying it. Which, you know, it reminds us a lot of like Desi Arnaz, yeah. for example, right? Who yeah. was, again, just ate, breathed, lived show business. It mm-hmm. was, he knew the ins and outs. He knew how people behaved, reacted, and what they wanted. Mm-hmm. It, it was just, he lived to be on that stage and connecting with an audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Very similar. Yeah, and understood the business really well. Right, right, right. Which it makes sense to me because it's a weird business. <laughs> like, oh. it's hard to succeed unless you really do, and you have to understand people. Yeah. And the actual industry that you're in. I mean, you could be the greatest showman in the world. And if you don't understand the ins and outs of the business side of things, good luck to you, you know. Yeah. I mean, if anything, you just get exploited. Right, um, right. By smarter businessmen. Yeah. <laughs> basically. When he was 18, Sammy Davis Jr. was drafted to fight in World War II in 1943. And in the military, he encountered some of the worst racism yet in his life. In one of his biographies, which is called Yes, I Can, he wrote, quote, I had been drafted into the army to fight, and I did, with Southerners and Southwesterners who got their kicks out of needling me. I must have had a knockdown, drag-out fight every two days. Wow. His nose was broken countless times and permanently flattened by all these encounters. Another time, a fellow soldier offered him a beer, which Sammy realized was laced with urine. Oh, gross! But eventually, he was assigned to special services, and he started performing in camp shows around the country, sometimes for the same servicemen who had brutalized him before. Oh, wow. And he noticed that the acts of violence diminished. (laughs) He said to his biographers, quote, I had to make the audience acknowledge me. I was ready to stay on stage for hours, dancing down the barriers between us. Oh, that's cool. Which made me kind of think, again, of Desi Arnaz, you know, both of them just really studying a lot. And I think they both found show business to be a way to really combat a lot of racism that they were experiencing. And they both kind of saw, like, when I'm up here, you admire me. You like my talent. I make you feel good. And so it's harder to dismiss me or be rude to me offstage. I mean, hopefully, with any luck, it will change your mind about people like me. Yeah. When when a part of your brain switches and says, oh, I like this person, then, you know, there's got to be some kind of domino effect there. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in your Let me rethink some other things. Yeah. Yeah. After the war ended and Sammy was honorably discharged, he went back to touring with his father and Will Mastin. By then, they were called the Will Mastin Trio with Sammy Davis Jr. because he was such a draw. Sammy Sr. and Will Mastin had been doing vaudeville for a long time now, and they knew that the way to perform for white people and not get into trouble was to not interact with the audience. Mm-hmm. You know, we get up there, we give them a show, show them a good time, but we don't break that fourth wall. Mm-hmm. They, they need to feel there's a barrier yeah. between us. They also were like, never imitate white people oh. um, don't do impressions of any white people wow. because they don't like that yep. it, like something maybe a mockery you mm-hmm. know feeling mocked or something like that mm-hmm. but they were like don't do it so when Sammy Davis Jr. was like uh, hey I want to add some songs and comedy routines to our act they at first said no 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 don't do that they said quote you don't even know how to sing <laughs> <laughs> but 
Uh, Sammy Jr. was like, yeah, watch me. Right. And of course, he can sing. Yeah. <laughs> he <laughs> definitely could sing. Yeah. It's the kind of thing you don't want to go back in history and be like, I told a young Sammy Davis Jr. not to sing. <laughs> right. You know? In 1946, Sammy Davis Jr. got his first big gig at the El Rancho Hotel in Las Vegas being paid $500 a week. But Vegas hotels were segregated. So he was not allowed to live at El Rancho like the white performers usually oh did. God. He was in residence, but not allowed to actually reside. Wow. And he wasn't, he actually, he wasn't even allowed to walk across the lobby. Jeez. Uh, Frank Sinatra, who became friends with Sammy Jr. after the Will Maston Trio opened for him in 1947, actually had to help him get a suite at the Sands Hotel. Like, he had to pull Sinatra strings wow. to get this guy a room. But as Vanity Fair notes, this breaking of the color barrier wasn't really celebrated by the black community. His manager and business partner, Cy Marsh, said, quote, Sammy Davis lived in a white world. The majority of his black audience couldn't afford to go see him. He was a black symbol performing for white audiences. And this is a conflict that would come up again and again in his life. But then Sammy's big break was at this place called Ciro's on Sunset Boulevard. It was the hottest, the most glamorous club in Hollywood where all the celebs hung out, including our good friends Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Yeah. It was 1951, which would have been the year I Love Lucy premiered. And the Will Maston trio starring Sammy Davis Jr. was going to open for headliner Janice Page, another hot actress singer of the time. Mm-hmm. Vanity Fair writes, quote, Sammy went into his imitation of white stars like Jimmy Stewart and Jerry Lewis. And these people were in the audience. Mm-hmm. And I remember his dad and right. Will had said, don't That's imitate white people. They don't like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But the trio was only supposed to do 20 minutes of material. But every time they tried to leave the stage, the audience would start yelling for more. They got Jimmy Stewart out there going, oh, that guy's pretty funny up there. Yeah, do do me again, Sammy. What's your Jerry Lewis? Jerry Lewis. uh, uh, Just probably just Hank Azaria's Jerry Lewis. What's his? All it's I can think professor of is the Frank. professor. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I didn't know that was meant to be a... Yeah. Well, it's uh, that's a pretty good impression of me you're doing up there. <laughs> the flyvin. The play it again. Can flyvin. Play it again, Sammy. Play, Sammy. The <laughs> flyvin. <laughs> I don't know. So they ended up staying up there for almost an hour, and they were so popular that Janice Page insisted on flipping the bill and making them the headliners. That might be unprecedented oh, in history seriously. for a headliner to be like, you know what? Let me take a you know back what? seat. The only one I can think of, Annie Oakley. Yeah. One Frank Butler said, you know what? Mm-hmm. You're you should be the top of the list here. People yeah. are here to see you. I think that means Janice Page knew a little something about show business as well. Oh yeah. She's like, you know what? Definitely. If you got the crowd this riled up, there's uh, only one way that this night needs to go. Yeah. They don't want to see me. Where do I sell more tickets? How do I make uh-huh. more money? If yeah. it's putting you in charge, that's what I'm here for, mm-hmm. and I'll do it. Plus, she's like, the fuck, I'm going to come out on stage and have them all be like, more Sammy Davis yeah, Jr. Right? She's exactly. like, um, no. <laughs> you will scream for me, yes. or I will not go. Exactly. So, with all this, Sammy Davis Jr., the star, was made. Yeah. In 1954, Sammy was given a mezuzah, which is a scrap of parchment with words from the Torah inscribed on it, and it's given as a traditional blessing. And Sammy's friend Eddie Cantor gave it to him. And instead of hanging it on his door, like most people do, Sammy actually wore it around his neck as a good luck charm. Mm. And the only night he forgot to wear it, 
He was in a car accident that almost killed him and cost him his left eye. Oh. He, he would wear a glass eye for the rest of his life. Wow. And he started studying the history of Judaism and the struggles of the Jews for racial justice and tolerance really resonated with him for some reason. I <laughs> yeah, can't, can't put my finger why. on it. Huh. <laughs> but there was some reason <laughs> that he was like, hmm, that seems familiar. <laughs> Uh, It wasn't long before he would convert to Judaism. And though he took some time to recuperate from this car accident and his eye injury and everything, he barely slowed down. His first two albums were released the next year to critical acclaim, leading to Vegas headlining gigs and parts in television and movies. But even though the audiences loved him on stage and on screen, they were still their same old shitty racist selves in person. Mm -hmm. Bert Boyer remembers that Sammy would get six standing ovations, but somebody would always yell out the N-word or something like that to just ruin the moment, Mm. you know? Which sucks because you know it cut. Like, the six standing of... We all know this. Yeah. You really overblow negative stuff. So you can get a million compliments, but you only remember the one horrible thing somebody said. You can't remember all the nice things. And you just ruin it for the audience, too. Right. Because you're you're cutting the magic. You're like, Mm -hmm. oh, we're all having a good time. Oh, oh, okay. Well, that kind of kills the moment. Mm -hmm. Or you got to assume, Speculation Station, I guess, that there's a chunk of people in that audience who maybe forgot they were racist for a little while. (laughs) And then somebody shouts that and they're like, oh, yeah, (laughs) that's cool. We can now I can shout it, too, or whatever. You know, like that's true. A lot of people feel like they just need permission Mm -hmm. from someone nearby to go ahead and be their most horrible selves. So either way, that's awful. Boyer says that at one point, Sammy told him, quote, you know, I reached a point with the indignities, the injustices, the nastiness, the racial abuses, I got to the point where I wanted to get the whitest, most famous chick in the world and just show him. To show everybody, yeah, guess what I'm doing with her? How do you like that? And he often did. He had flings with a number of white women, including a torrid affair with his friend Sinatra's ex-wife Ava Gardner in 1955. Uh The tabloid Confidential wrote, quote, some girls go for the gold, but it's bronze that sends sultry Ava Gardner. Jeez. <laughs> headlines. Come I, on, I mean, guys. seriously. But Hollywood was fairly tolerant of these connections, as long as they were just lighthearted flings. But it would be quite different when Sammy Jr. seemed to start entertaining ideas of something more public and long-lasting with a white woman, especially since that woman was Kim Novak, the newest, hottest blonde on the Hollywood scene. And when Sammy's eyes landed on her, Hollywood would not like it one bit. So let's find out more about that right after this. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle. And I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. 
This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here... We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome back to the show, everyone. So while Sammy Davis Jr. was getting more and more famous after his appearance at Ciro's, 
Kim Novak was getting her start in Hollywood, thanks to the notorious studio head at Columbia Pictures, Harry Cohn. And we'll just call Harry Cohn our villain of the week. Yeah, death. Harry Cohn was often called King Cohn, and he wanted to be known as the toughest, meanest studio mogul in Hollywood, which is a, a high bar or a, a low bar. Or a low bar? You know? I know, right? How, how low it's can more like, you go? Yeah, it's not like a bar to clear. It's like a limbo bar to go under. under. Can I get below <laughs> the level that you set. Well, then Harry Cohn was quite flexible. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. I mean, this guy had a framed photo of his hero, Benito Mussolini, <laughs> hanging behind his desk. He would brandish a riding crop in meetings and slash it on the desk to scare employees. And he loved firing people, especially on Christmas Eve. <laughs> what a Scrooge. Seriously. I mean, even Scrooge didn't actually fire Bob Cratch on Christmas Eve. That's true. He just didn't want to give him the Christmas day off. Yeah. (laughs) Worse than Scrooge. (laughs) Harry Cohn, worse than Scrooge. He also responded harshly to disrespect. Once when he went to dinner at the most famous restaurant in the world, Le Pavillon, the owner sat him near the bathroom because he thought Harry was nothing but a common Hollywood hoodlum. But unfortunately, Columbia owned the building that housed Le Pavillon. So in retaliation, Harry raised their rent. Damn! You sit me by the bathroom? Well, how about an extra $14,000 a month? I'll show you. (laughs) (laughs) And then he kicks a little cat. Probably, yeah. Slaps a small child. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) He was also... Close with several gangsters, including the mobster John Roselli, who he wore matching ruby friendship rings with. Aw, a little bromance. <laughs> How cute. Can you imagine them exchanging? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, you know, I got this for you just because we're so close. Ah, for me? I thought you could wear the B-E-F-R-I and I would wear the S-T-E-N-D-S. <laughs> ah, that way we'll always know. <laughs> well, then when people put it together, they know we're best friends. Besties. <laughs> I love you. Let's go down to the playground and scream at some kids. <laughs> hey, yeah, I'd love to steal candy from some babies today. <laughs> it was also said that no other studio head put more bodies in the cemetery than Harry Cohn. And he had the most notorious casting couch in Hollywood, expecting actresses to have sex with him in exchange for putting them in the movies. Right. So this guy was like, Harvey Weinstein times Harvey Weinstein plus Harvey Weinstein. (laughs) Yeah, with a little Tony Soprano thrown in, I guess, because he had mob ties. I don't know. Maybe Harvey Weinstein has mob ties. Probably. Is the mob still a thing? I don't know. If you're with the mob, please reach out. Send us an email. Let us know if you're still a thing. (laughs) Yeah. We don't uh, think the FBI is listening, but I mean, if they're not, I guess we'll redact your name. We'd like to. If you have friends in the FBI, please tell them to listen. They might get some hot tips about the mob. (laughs) Who knows? If you got a friend, a neighbor, an uncle, or an aunt in the FBI or the mob, let them know. Maybe we could start a little turf war right here on Ridiculous Romance. Wow. (laughs) What a fallout from our episode. Uh, You mean what a surge in listenership. (laughs) True. But yeah, also that's so gross because I don't I don't have to tell any of you, I'm sure, that a casting couch and being like, if I put a lady in a movie, she has to do something sexual for me uh-huh. is disgusting and gross. Yeah. Um, because male stars don't have didn't have to do that. No. I mean, Harry Cohen wasn't making Jeff Chandler suck his dick to right. get a part. He was right. just like, here, hire, here's a job. Yeah. But he did get defied 
a couple of times. I think Joan Collins turned him down once. She said, keep it in your pants. I'm going to dinner with your wife in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, Joan. Uh, But he had also been defied by his current studio darling, Rita Hayworth. Oh. Now, Rita's first husband, who Orson Welles, Rita's second husband, called, quote, literally a pimp, ordered her to sleep with Harry Cohn after she signed her contract with Columbia, Mm. which seems like weird timing. She already had her contract signed. Right. What's the point? Send him a thank you card. (laughs) You're crazy. But Rita refused to sleep with Harry Cohn. She's like, I'm good. You know, I'm a good actress. Eat shit. Yeah. And it made Harry crazy with rage and jealousy. He didn't fire her because she was a huge box office draw, but he basically punished her for two decades. For not fucking him. Uh, he put a bug in her dressing room and listened to all her conversations. He had a maid reporting on all her movements, like watching her her dressing room and like reporting on all her movements. Mm-hmm. He would use the bathroom in front of her and he belittled her constantly. And he would fight with her about everything, especially her love life, because as you may have noticed, Rita did marry several times. And every time she did, her box office returns would tank. So, yeah, they were just in a constant struggle for a long time, you know, again, for about two decades. But it got real infuriating when Harry wanted Rita cast in his pet project, which was a biblical epic about Mary and Joseph. And Rita's fourth husband, a big band singer named Dick Hames, whose Hollywood nickname was Mr. Evil, came into Harry Cohn's office wearing a beard, demanding to be cast as Joseph. Huh. Harry was like, you don't tell me what to do. I see. (laughs) I tell you who's cast. (laughs) So Harry decided he was going to get back at Rita by making the next girl to walk into his office a big star. Someone he could mold into whatever he wanted and who wouldn't give him a whole bunch of lip about it. Right. He's like, find me someone docile. Yeah. Fortunately, the next person to walk into his office was a very beautiful, shy 20-year-old named Marilyn Novak. Uh, This girl had done a little modeling. She was demonstrating refrigerators as Miss Deep Freeze. Do you think anybody was like, what a frigid bitch? Oh, that's pretty good. (laughs) And she's like, thank you. That's what I'm going for here. That's what I'm supposed to do. But now Harry wanted to make her a movie star. Marilyn Monroe was already a huge star at the time. So, of course, they changed her name and they made her Kim Novak. Mm -hmm. She was, I guess, by their standards, a little on the plump side. So they had her lose 15 pounds. They dyed her hair three shades of blonde and even added a lavender tint when her publicist came up with this idea for a lavender gimmick as part of her branding. Mm. So everything had to be lavender smelling or colored like lavender. A publicist once wrote to Hedda Hopper's gossip column that when Kim stayed in a hotel, her fetish for lavender was always seen to. They said, quote, her suite will be lavender scented. Bed sheets and pillow slips in lavender, and while she's tubbing in lavender-scented water, she may take her calls on a lavender-colored bathroom telephone. Like, I, could they not have picked an easier color to say than lavender, lavender? And all right, what about red? Uh, Red's a red, nice short red, color. Red, 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 red. <laughs> so all this lavender stuff is everywhere. It smelled like lavender, looked like lavender. And the fact that Kim Novak actually hated the color lavender was apparently totally irrelevant. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, But though she submitted to all this, the weight loss, the hair dye, the lavender, whatever, Mm -hmm. whatever, um, Kim was far from the docile and biddable star that Harry Cohn was really looking for. Right. 
1957, Alfred Hitchcock was about to start shooting Vertigo when his lead actress Vera Miles got pregnant and she withdrew from playing the role of Judy Barton. Mm. And Hitchcock needed a replacement. So he approached Harry Cohn about Kim taking the part without even requesting a screen test. Oh, okay. Now, Harry hated the script for Vertigo, but he thought Hitchcock was a good director. (laughs) I guess he got one of two things right in (laughs) in that. So he let Kim read the script, and she loved the part. She accepted it right away without even asking for a meeting with Hitchcock. So they both were kind of like, whatever, let's do this. Yeah. But then she refused to show up to work unless Harry gave her a better-paying contract. All right. She's kind of on strike. And that's because Harry Cohn was being paid $250,000 to loan Kim out to Paramount to do Vertigo. Okay. But... Kim was only getting paid $1,250 a week to actually do the movie. That's a discrepancy. Very large discrepancy. Uh, Can we convert that? Can we look at those numbers today? Oh, sure. Okay, um, so... So he got... He he was being paid $250,000 to loan out Kim Novak, and that is $2.4 million today. Wow. And then she got what ended up being $12,000 a week today. All right. That That's too large of a discrepancy. So somebody's making millions of dollars on you and you're getting thousands in return mm-hmm. for, for being the actual body that shows up to do the work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it, it reminds me a little bit of um, Scarlett Johansson and Disney. Oh, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Um, because, of course, people, maybe even at this time, but... Certainly when Scarlett did it, people were like, you make so much money, shut up. Yeah. And it's like, sure. But the thing is, it's not about how much I'm making in comparison to an average person in America. Right. The thing is, is that they are making billions of dollars off my work. Yeah. And I have to be paid proportionately to the value that I'm bringing. Yeah. So anyway, I think she had a very similar like, okay, I know I'm getting paid a lot and I'm very grateful. But look, the truth is you're making a lot more off me than I'm making and you're going to have to fix this. Exactly. Um, And it wasn't like this was the first time either. On an earlier film, Harry Cohn got $100,000 to loan out Kim while she only got $750 a week. And then on another film, she was only paid $13,000 and the leading man got paid $200,000. Oh, my God. So she was just like, uh-uh, I'm not doing this. That's a lot less than 70%. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And, okay, Harry was, of course, royally pissed when her salary disputes were mentioned in a Time magazine profile on Kim. And he famously said, quote, They all believe their publicity after a while. I have never met a grateful performer in the picture business. Wow. Oh, yeah. Let me be so grateful to you that I, first of all, have to sleep with you in order to ever get one job. Uh, Right. And then secondly, I should just take whatever scraps you're willing to throw me. Yep. No. Yep. And then the fact that he gets so mad when it goes out publicly because he knows Uh, knows. it's shitty. Yeah. He knows it's terrible. Uh, I want to be a horrible person without people knowing about it. That's not (laughs) fair. I don't like it. Well, I don't want to face consequences for my actions. (laughs) So at first he suspended her, actually. He was like, I'm not giving into your little strike. But after a few weeks, he relented and he offered her a contract more worthy of a major star, bumping her up to $3,000 a week. All right. Which is still not that very much, to be honest. I mean, compared to what he was getting. Yeah. But it was definitely better. She was happy with it. And she told the press, quote, I don't like to have anyone take advantage of me. That's damn right, Kim. So she turned in some of her best acting work in Vertigo, and she got tons of praise for her performance, but found out later that Hitchcock was frustrated at having to have her instead of Vera, 
And he thought that she was ruining his movie. I think time would tell that that's not, not the case. Well, Alfred? Fun- funnily enough, that movie was not very well received when it came out. Like, right. that people thought it wasn't that great. Yeah. They thought Kim was really good in it, but they were like, this isn't the best movie Hitchcock's ever made. Uh-huh. And then now, of course, it's considered one of his masterpieces. Right. Right. So what is what what do you what does Hitchcock know? <laughs> <laughs> she had just finished up the shoot when she went to see Sammy Davis Jr. singing at the Chez Paris in Chicago. Like Kim, he was at the height of his popularity and fame after appearing on Broadway in Mr. Wonderful in 1956. <laughs> now he was getting paid twenty five thousand dollars a week at the sands hotel in vegas it's twenty five thousand dollars in 1956 money not today he had invited kim to sit in the front row at the club and this would be the first and virtually last time that he and kim would be seen in public together a little while after she went to chez paris to see him sing Tony Curtis was backstage at Ciro's, and Sammy told him, you know, I'd really like to meet Kim Novak. Um, you know, he's he's kind of telling him, I invited her to come see me sing, and she, she came, she sat in the front row, but, like, we never got a chance to talk, and I'd love to just really get a chance to sit down with her and exchange some words. He thought if they met in public that it would create problems for both of them. So he was kind of at a loss about how to ever meet Kim Novak. You know what I mean? So wingman extraordinaire Tony Curtis was like, let me help you out. And he decided to throw a party at his house and invite Kim to it. Oh, wow. And it totally worked. Tony told Vanity Fair, quote, they both came over and spent the evening together deep in thought, deep in talk. I could see right from the beginning that they were getting along in an intense way. That is a hell of a wingman. Be like, uh, for real. Oh, y'all want to meet? Let me set up a whole damn party. You know how much trouble it is to throw a party? As, and I Tony mean, was just doing it so Sammy could meet this white lady. Well, and you know how hard it is for you and I to throw a party for our 12 friends. <laughs> right. You know, imagine doing it in Hollywood for like the hottest stars of the Seriously. day. But some asshole at the party called in a tip to a gossip columnist who wrote, quote, which top female star, K-N, is seriously dating which big-named entertainer, S-D? Like, threw in the initials and everything. Mm -hmm. And as soon as the column ran, Sammy called Kim to apologize for the publicity and assure her that he had nothing to do with it. He told her they would handle it however she wanted because he knew the position she was in with the studio. They both had a lot to lose from this relationship. She was the number one box office babe in the country at the time, and he was trying to become a dramatic actor. And they both needed America to love them in order to keep their careers going, and America did not love interracial relationships at this time. Only 4% of Americans approved of it, and it was still illegal in 23 states. The Supreme Court had just ordered the desegregation of schools, so racial tension was incredibly high at this time. Yeah, and also it was only three years after Emmett Till, oh my God. Um, of course, was killed for right. allegedly like winking at a white lady or doing something totally innocuous. So it was just interracial stuff. People were not here for it. But Kim said the studio didn't own her, and she invited Sammy over for spaghetti and meatballs. Aw, did they did they get the same noodle? They must have done. They must have. He like nuzzles over a meatball with his nose. <laughs> yeah, like, this is yours. Sammy, did I forget to give you a fork? <laughs> everything okay over there? I got 
For a while, they evaded the press and Harry Cohn's studio spies by having intimate dinners at Kim's house. And Sammy would get a ride from his friend Arthur Silber up to her house, and he would hide in the back of the car, huddled under a rug, just so, like, nobody could see him in the car Mm. and, like, put two and two together. And eventually, a third party helped Sammy rent a beach house in Malibu so they could have private rendezvous. Oh, sure, sure. And Sammy wrote in his biography that all the secrecy kind of drew them together even more. He wrote, quote, She hadn't thought about me any more than I thought about her until it was forbidden. Then we became conspirators, drawn together by the single thing we had in common, defiance. Hell yeah. Because, you know, as we noticed, Kim's being real corralled and yeah. directed a lot by Harry Cohn. Right. Meanwhile, Sammy is always getting it because he's black, so he yeah. gets it from all directions right. about what he's allowed to do and not allowed to do. So they're both, I think, really chomping at the bit to like, ooh, I just want to do one thing that will really fuck with everybody. Um, so I think they had a real connection, like mm-hmm. a real real chemistry, but it seems like a lot of it was just like, ooh, this will really fuck with them. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, like you said, I mean, Kim was almost in a position of like, you know, an oppressive parent type almost. Like, you can't go out looking like that. You can't date this boy. You can't mm-hmm. do that. You can't be in this movie. I'll give you your allowance, you know. And yeah. so, of course, she rebelled against that mm-hmm. every way she could. And, yeah, Sammy Davis Jr. just rebelling against uh, just trying to be a person just trying to show the world that he should be free to make his own choices right is does this piss you off then get pissed off die mad you know die mad about it yeah totally but when sammy had a private telephone installed in his dressing room at the sands so he could talk to kim without the hotel switchboard listening in then it seemed to his friends that sammy was starting to get serious about Mm -hmm. this in December of 1957, when Kim went home to Chicago to visit her family for Christmas, Sammy missed her so much that he wanted to find a replacement for himself at his show at the Sands to fly out and see her. And old Frankie Sinatra, old Blue Eyes, <laughs> refused to let him leave. I don't think so, Sammy. You got a job to do, and you're going to do it. These people came out for a show, and then we're going to give them a show. Yeah. So, Sammy begged his friend Arthur on his knees to go to Chicago for him so he could take Kim a message. He couldn't call her because her family only had one phone, and, you know, who knows, anybody could be listening in on that conversation. Does that not sound old as hell? I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) They got one phone in their house, and it's a party line. There's no private conversation. Like, that's so funny to me. So Arthur had to get a flight from Vegas to Los Angeles at 3 a.m., and then another flight to Chicago from there. But when he got there, he heard a message over the loudspeaker that Sammy Davis Jr. was on the next flight to Chicago himself. So Arthur told Vanity Fair later, quote, I don't know how he did it. I mean, all this for five minutes. It was just how deep this affair went. I was sent to Chicago to go to Kim and say, Sammy loves you. That is dedication, right? He flew all the way to Chicago for one night just to see her and meet her parents and like hang out for a second. And then he had to go back to Vegas. Because Frankie only let him off for one night. Yeah. Which, although, I got to say, a little rude to Arthur. Be like, hey, I need you to fly to Chicago. And then he leaves and he's like, hey, you know what? Ah, screw it. I'm going to go. I know. I was like, Arthur was like tired as hell from all his red (laughs) eyes. And he's sitting at the airport like, I didn't even need to go. What are you doing, man? Back to Las Vegas I go, I guess. I think nobody told me. Nobody told anybody I loved them. 
<laughs> I don't get to sleep with a hot blonde after all this. I know, right? What do I get? <laughs> Just my millions of dollars <laughs> and hanging out with all my celebrity friends. <sighs> Fine. I guess I'll write my memoirs at some point. <laughs> So all this sexy stuff between Kim and Sammy was making Harry Cohn furious. <laughs> but when the London Daily Mirror reported, quote, Kim Novak is about to become engaged to Sammy Davis Jr. in Hollywood as a gasp. <laughs> that was the last straw. <laughs> now this little item in the London Daily Mirror was based on a rumor that a clerk had found a marriage license for Kim and Sammy that was filled out but had never been filed. Um, I'm not sure anyone actually saw that piece of paper. Yeah, or not. that it was sounds probably like just a, a big dubious piece source. Of garbage. Yeah, me, yeah, I'm sure it was whatever. Oh, I found it right here. <laughs> Office says right here. Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> Kim Novak. We want to get married. <laughs> and they wrote in the notes section at the bottom, uh, we really want to get married. This will piss Harry Cohn off. Mm -hmm. And uh, everyone should buy a copy of the London Daily Mirror. They said that. Yes. It says it right there. What? Who can argue with it? It's right there in black and white. <laughs> Whether it was real or not, Harry was so incensed by this that he even had a small heart attack over it which was the first of several that would finally kill him. Ah. Uh, ah, and everyone breathed a sigh. <laughs> too little, too late. Because <laughs> he felt like he had put all this work into making Kim Novak into a star and that she would be throwing it all away by marrying a black man, which would alienate box office audiences all over the country, especially in the South. But Harry Cohn wasn't the type to take these things lying down. Mm. Harry Cohn was a man of action. So he got in touch with an old friend, a gangster named Mickey Cohen, and told him to put some pressure on Sammy to marry a black woman right away. Wow. If Sammy refused, Mickey was told to break his legs and put out his other eye. So in January of 1958, Mickey Cohen approached Sammy's dad, Sammy Davis Sr., at the racetrack, and he told him... Uh, hey, Sammy's got 24 hours to find the black woman to marry, or I'm going to have to blind him. Sorry, you know, it's just business. Business. You got to do what you got to do. That's why I'm just, uh, don't don't shoot the messenger, you know? <laughs> or the guy who's going to do it. <laughs> or the guy, don't shoot the guy who's going to blind you. Uh, you know, I'm just doing my job. So when Sammy Davis Jr. found out about this, he was obviously stunned. I mean... First thing he did was call some of the gangsters that he was friendly with because this was a time in Hollywood when you could not be in the entertainment business without dealing with mobsters on some level. Mm -hmm. So everybody knew a couple of gangsters. <laughs> yeah. If you got famous, you you owed a Christmas card to a mobster somewhere. Somewhere. You know? mm -hmm. Arthur Silber told Vanity Fair, quote, the gangsters owned the nightclubs, all of them. They controlled the silverware. They controlled the linens. They controlled all the liquor. Mm -hmm. Sammy Davis Jr. also had a bad habit of borrowing, so he was always deeply in debt to the mob as well, which Arthur spent a lot of time straightening out for him. Sammy Jr. called Sam Giancana in Chicago, but Sam couldn't help. He basically told him, eh, you know, the West Coast, that's not really my jurisdiction <laughs> there, so, uh, you know, you better not go back to Hollywood until you're all good there with Harry Cohn. I That's love a pretty this, bad Chicago. <laughs> this uh, Midwestern. <laughs> it's a little north of Chicago, I think. <laughs> Maybe but. a little. Uh, but that's okay. Yeah. Now, it is worth noting that Burt Boyer, the Broadway writer, 
he never really thought that the mob would ever hurt Sammy Davis Jr. Um, he pointed out to Vanity Fair that Sammy played all the mob's clubs, you know, all over the country, no matter West Coast, East Coast, Chicago. He was playing all of them. He was a huge draw, so he made them tons of money, which made him more valuable than Harry Cohn. Mm. So, you know, he was kind of like, eh, they, you know, if Harry Cohn asked for a favor, maybe they were like, yeah, sure, we'll put the screws to him. But they never would have actually yeah. gone through with it. Yeah. But Sammy's manager, Cy Marsh, was certain that, quote, Sammy was inches away from being killed. Well. And Sammy certainly believed that he was inches away from being killed. Like he, I, which I can imagine, he probably, even though he's very well paid and very famous, it's not like people were telling him a lot how valuable he was. Right, or something. right. So he's probably like, yeah, I'm disposable. And after he got the phone call from his father about the threats from Mickey Cohen, Arthur noticed Sammy sitting on the edge of his bed in his suite at the Sands, flipping through an address book. And he's like, what you doing? And Sammy said, I'm looking for a woman to marry. Wow. And that brings us right into this episode's side piece. Will you marry me? The name he picked was Lorray White, who is an actress and dancer he had dated briefly, and she was performing down the street at the Silver Slipper. Speculation station. Do, do you think that he was like, he got to Lorray's name and was like, you know what? Fuck them. I'm going to marry a white woman one way or another. <laughs> <laughs> Lorray White. I got yeah. me a white woman somehow. Yes. Last name counts. Last name counts. Close enough. <laughs> So she was 23, she was already twice divorced, and she had a six-year-old. She came over to his suite, and Sammy sat down and told her he'd give her a certain sum of money. Um, people have speculated between $10,000 and $25,000. Okay. To marry him and act as his wife on the condition that the marriage would be dissolved before a year was out. So okay. she was just going to play act for a little while, get him out of this mess. Just so my legs don't get broken. So romantic. No, she was probably like, oh, my God, me. What was your proposal like? Well, I didn't want my legs broken. So <laughs> there was there were crosshairs on me. Yep. And I got down on one knee and said, for the sake of my vision, mm -hmm. please do me the honor of taking this check and marrying me for 10 months. Yeah. <laughs> taking this check and also my name for uh -huh. a little period of time. And Lorraine agreed. And on January 10th of 1958. She and Sammy Jr. were married by a justice of the peace. She was 40 minutes late for a two-minute ceremony. So uh, she wasn't in a rush to get there. Mm, she's no. like, he'll wait. Nah, she's <laughs> he like, ain't going to be mad. <laughs> he ain't leaving. I know that much. <laughs> Harry Belafonte, who was in town performing at the Riviera, was Sammy's best man. Sammy got wasted at the wedding. And on the way back to the hotel, he tried to strangle Lorraine in the backseat of their car. Arthur had to restrain him and carry him to his room while Sammy yelled, quote, why won't they let me live my life? Mm. He also put a gun to his head that evening, but Arthur walked in just in time to knock it out of his hands and literally sit on him until he passed out. Yeah, Arthur, he... really just the, the best friend you could ask for. Arthur was there for Sammy Davis Jr. his yeah. whole life, basically. Yeah. I think it's telling that even though Sammy knew this was temporary and not real, he yeah. still was so upset to yeah. be married to this yeah. woman he didn't love and that he didn't want. And he's like, just dealing with that weirdness of like, I have money and fame and friend, famous friends and I'm in this great 
sweet and everything seems like fine, but I still can't have the things that I want that any yeah. other man can have. Yeah. And it uh, should be noted that with all that said, totally unacceptable for him to take it out on her oh, yeah. with violence. Absolutely. Like that's insane. Right. Like drunk, angry at the world, mm-hmm. totally mistreated. Yeah. All totally good reasons to be furious and upset and inconsolable and acting like a damn fool, but not okay to right. try and strangle a woman, you no. know, in the back of your car. And there's not a lot of details about that. It just said he got real distraught. Yeah. And that's why he started, like, trying to strangle her. Right. So, uh, who knows? Maybe they exchanged some words. Right. She said something insensitive, you know, insensitive or right. something. And right. he decided he just went off. Like, yeah. I just can't imagine why he would make her the... I guess she was just the representation of everything that was wrong at that it's point. It's true. That's true. You know? That's true, too. And if you're really drunk and fucked up, you know, you probably don't have a lot of logic to, to right. your thoughts right. or anything like that. But. but get you to a place where when you're drunk and angry, you don't take it out with violence on anyone else. Right. Because that's still a choice. Lorraine White was installed in the presidential suite at the Sands Hotel alone and later rented a house in the Hollywood Hills. The couple never once lived together. But Sammy was grateful to her for protecting him from the mob violence, and he gave her a blonde mink stole and a rose-cut diamond ring surrounded by emeralds. She went on a shopping spree and was photographed surrounded with 20 pairs of shoes. And only six months later, he paid her $25,000 to divorce him. Kim, meanwhile, largely kept to herself after his marriage, and it seems like their affair kind of fizzled out. She said in Vanity Fair, quote, I was suddenly in the eye of a hurricane. My agent told me my career would be over if I continued to see Sammy. Some of my friends wouldn't even return my telephone calls. <laughs> That's... Which I have to say, if you're dating a black guy and your friends stop returning your phone calls, then maybe they are not very good friends. Yeah. I, although I like that she got, if you continue to date him, you'll get fired. And he got, if you continue to date her, I'll break your legs and take your eye. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's a racial disparity right there. Very much so. Yeah. And yeah, Kim's biographer thought Harry Cohn was the real villain of this whole thing, which mm-hmm. he's not wrong. It's, it really does sound like, I mean, Harry Cohn's the reason they elevated the stakes so high. Yeah. He's crazy. Why would you do that? <sighs> but fortunately, <laughs> which I normally don't say about things like this, but fortunately, two months after ordering the hit on Sammy, Harry Cohn had a final heart attack and died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Now, 2,000 people attended his funeral, and comedian Red Skelton famously said, quote, Well, it proves what Harry always said. Give the public something they want to see, and they'll come out for it. (laughs) (laughs) I love he was roasted at his own funeral. Uh And Harry's widow blamed Kim's, quote, scandalous behavior for Harry's death. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's all her fault. All right, lady. Yeah. (laughs) Get over it. Maybe he should have learned how to calm down and not take things so seriously. Maybe. And though he'd been such an asshole, work dried up for Kim after he died. She admitted that he was good at finding parts for her, and she said that no one at the studio seemed to know what to do with her after that. She did a few more films, but in 1962, she basically left Hollywood for good. And she retired to Big Sur to horseback ride, paint, lasso driftwood, raise llamas, and make flutes out of kelp. You know, classic starlet things to do (laughs) post-retirement. Normal (laughs) hobbies that we all have. She tried to write her memoirs, but she discovered that she had blocked out entire parts of her Hollywood life. And she would either not be able to remember anything, or she'd get so emotional that she had to stop writing. 
which says a lot about whatever oh, was yeah. going on with her. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is only just a part of her life right. in Hollywood, and it was this crazy. Yeah. But it must it there must have like been that. some real fucked up shit to have yeah. her be like, I can't remember any of that. Yeah. Eventually, she moved to an even more remote area in the Pacific Northwest. Actor Cliff Robertson believed that she, quote, played her cards carefully, kept her winnings, and finally left Hollywood. I think she beat it. I think that's fair to yeah. say, right? If you're like, she didn't burn out, she didn't flame out, yeah. nobody asked her to leave, nobody was like, ugh, why are we still looking at this this lady? Yeah. She just did her movies, she turned in some amazing work, she's a legend, and then she went to go be herself. Look how many people Hollywood leaves destroyed, especially back then. Yeah. Just left, you know, just with nothing except alcoholism mm-hmm. and horrible memories. Yeah. And uh, even the successful ones were often left miserable. Even like Cary Grant, who yeah. was successful his whole life, mm-hmm. was still, we learned in the Carlo Ponti Sophia Loren episode, mm-hmm. like a damaged, destroyed person who wasn't very happy. Yeah. You know, so if she got out, took her money, and obviously she wasn't, she had issues. Right. She had memories she couldn't even think of without getting upset distraught. about it and distraught. Um, but. She she beat it. She got out. Mm-hmm. She's okay, relatively mm-hmm. speaking. So yeah, yeah. So good good for her. And she's still alive, by the way. She is still yeah. Kicking. But only a few months after all this rigmarole with Kim, Sammy would set Tinseltown ablaze again with his marriage to a different white actress, my Brit. And we'll find out all about that right after this. started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's Dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. 
Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby Award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. And welcome back to the show, and welcome back to Tinseltown. Yeah. Lights. Camera. (laughs) Vanity Fair says that, quote, Like Novak, Britt was a shy, towering blonde with a breathtaking face. She was Swedish, and she had been discovered by Italian filmmaker Carlo Ponti. Hey, I know that guy. Hey! We talked about him in our episode, Carlo Ponti and Sophia Loren. So, yeah, she she did make a few um, Italian films, and then she relocated to L.A. and to Hollywood, and she signed with 20th Century Fox. And she made a few films with the likes of Marlon Brando, Robert Meacham, Montgomery Clift, and Peter Falk. Poor girl. <laughs> I know, right? She's like, actually, I kind of hate it here. But in 1959, she met Sammy Davis Jr., and after dating briefly, they got engaged in 1960, and 20th Century Fox immediately canceled her contract. Wow. And she never made a movie again. But Vanity Fair says she has no regrets. She said, quote, I loved Sammy, and I had the chance to marry the man I loved. Sammy announced their engagement in London, where he was performing, but the day after, British fascists picketed the theater booing and shouting racial slurs. Yeah, which included anti-Semitic slurs as well because they knew he had 
converted to Judaism. So it was a lot of horrible words all strung together. God. So back at home, both of them got stacks of hate mail from white and black people. Plenty of people in the black community had long accused Sammy Davis Jr. of being ashamed of being black. Bomb threats were called in at theaters Sammy performed in. And once in D.C., the American Nazi Party picketed outside his show, although audiences gave him a standing ovation when he got to the stage. But he got so many death threats that he had to hire 24-hour armed guards, and he was always worried that someone would attack Mai if they went out, so they rarely did. Bert Boyer said Mai was, quote, like a prisoner in a mink-lined cell. Mm. When they did go out... Sammy was armed, either with a cane with a knife in it or a gun, which he definitely knew how to use because Sammy Davis Jr. also competed in fast draw competitions. Wouldn't you love to see him against Annie Oakley? (laughs) (laughs) Like if there was a way to, if I could Bill and Ted, you know, a collection of people and do a show, that would be part of it. (laughs) Sharpshooters, yeah, (laughs) sure, totally. Also, I mean, I don't know about you, but I was a little shocked that this close after the end of World War II, we uh-huh. still had an, a Nazi party and we still had fascists, yeah. like out yeah. and proud fascists walking around. Yep. I feel like, I, I guess I thought, well, after they lost, you know, everyone <laughs> sort of was like, oh, that's not popular anymore. But I, I guess it took a lot longer than I thought to kind of, and we still didn't really stamp out that strain you know, of horror. You know, one thing I've learned about fascists recently, and Nazis specifically, is mm-hmm. that it's very hard to stop them from being Nazis. Yeah. No matter how many times they lose. True. And look like idiots mm-hmm. and fail and suck horribly at everything they try to accomplish. <laughs> um, they continue to just keep on sucking out there in the world. Yeah. <sighs> So true. Yeah. So I imagine that, yeah, after World War II, plenty of them were just like barely even took time to lick their wounds. Just got right back on the on the horrible, horrible horse. <laughs> <laughs> and the horse was like, please don't ride yeah, me. Get off of me. Don't involve me in your nonsense. <laughs> Sammy worked with the civil rights movement. He campaigned for JFK, but he was booed while singing the national anthem at the Mississippi Democratic National Convention. Mm. And that brought him nearly to tears. And after winning the election, JFK invited Sammy to sing at his inauguration. And Sammy was so proud that he got like a special suit made and Mai bought a Balenciaga dress. Like they were getting ready to bring it Mm -hmm. to the inauguration. But only three days before the event, the White House called and uninvited them. All politics, they said, is nothing personal. They just don't want to invite controversy. But the snub really hurt and embarrassed Sammy. And plus, Harry Belafonte was still invited and still performed, even though he, too, was married to a white woman. He had Hmm. married a white woman in 1957. But no one had gotten more publicity than Sammy and his wife. Right. Speculation station, I'm guessing that JFK's strategists were kind of like, well, Sammy's in the middle of a whole controversy. Everybody's looking at him and talking about him and my and... We don't want all that energy up in here. It'll alienate the su- racist mm-hmm. Southern Democrats we still have in the party for mm-hmm. some reason. But also they were kind of like, well, we have to have at least one black face in the mix because JFK campaigned. One of his huge campaign promises was to sign a civil rights act. Right, as soon as right. he entered office, he was like, "I'm get- that's my first priority. Yeah. Of course it wasn't. But, um, but anyway, so I'm sure that's why that's probably why Harry Belafonte was there. Sure. Um, 
Again, I'm speculating. And then again, in 1963, Sammy and his wife, Mai, were invited to a White House dinner for African-American leaders. And they actually got to go to that one, I guess. But JFK hissed at one of his aides to, quote, get them out of here and, like, hustle them away from photographers. He didn't want them to seem like, I guess, they were a big part of the event or something. Mm -hmm. So anyway... Even though Sammy had campaigned for JFK, had fundraised for the Democratic Party, had helped him win, he did not give a, get a lot of respect from that administration Jeez. at all. Come on, John. The speculation know. station. Maybe either Marilyn or Jackie was mm. like, hey, he's, yeah, Sammy, he's pretty cool. Oh, he's I didn't think that. He's pretty cool. I like Sammy Davis Jr. And John was like, get him out of here. <laughs> I will not have him here impressing my wife or girlfriend. <laughs> I will not allow it. So once, right after their marriage, Martin Luther King Jr. came to visit Sammy and Mai at their hotel suite, which they were sharing with Burt Boyer and his wife. Burt asked MLK, Martin, where are we racially? But it was Sammy Davis Jr. who answered. He said, quote, I'll tell you where I am. I'm in the best suite in this hotel, but I can't walk down the street with my wife. That says a lot. How frustrating. That says so much because it's like, I'm a millionaire. I'm one of the top earning people in this country. I've got respect and love and cash. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm living at the top of the mountain of the American dream. I have achieved it all like we're supposed to. And yet, I am hated, derided. I can't go out in public. I can't express my love for someone. Nope. Hideous. America will not let me forget that I am black and that black is different and black is not as good or something. Right, right. Like, it's just crazy. It is, it must be such a cognitive, like, just a mind fuck because you're like, I've done everything that you're supposed to do. I have everything everyone says makes you happy. Right. And yet- here I am still dealing with the same bullshit as anyone else on the street that doesn't have what I have. Yeah. MLK responded by quoting the words of a slave preacher. Quote, we ain't what we ought to be. We ain't what we want to be. We ain't what we gonna be. But thank God we ain't what we was. Mm. Um, which is a, a certainly a context to put it in. Mm-hmm. But you really kind of see sammy's feelings there about his situation and the reality of the situation he was in Mm -hmm. um and mlk kind of not tempering that but sort of looking for the silver lining i guess maybe yeah which i think mlk was good at doing that where he's like listen i i want to acknowledge that we've come very far because as we've talked about before white people always think You've gone far enough. <laughs> you right, know what I mean? Right. Well, you're not slaves anymore, so what are you complaining right, about? Right, right. Well, you know, things aren't segregated, so what are you complaining about? Uh-huh. You know what I mean? It's always moving. There was a black president. Come uh, on. Racism's over, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, basically. So it's, you know, I think he was kind of like, yeah, I want to acknowledge that certainly things have changed. They are better than they were. Sure. But they ain't what they gonna be. Right. And... <laughs> I promise you, the more changes are coming. Yeah. We're still going to be working on that. We're yeah. not satisfied. So and it, they shouldn't, they should not be satisfied. Yeah, yeah, absolutely not. Then in 1967, the Supreme Court ruled that anti miscegenation laws, the laws that made interracial marriage illegal, were unconstitutional in the landmark Loving versus Virginia decision. And we are going to do a whole other episode on Loving versus Virginia. We talked about it a bit in the Betty and Barney Hill episode. Right. When we met our alien friends because mm-hmm. they were an interracial couple in the 60s, too. That's right. So the Loving versus Virginia decision 
definitely changed the whole country. Gerald Early, the editor for the book, The Sammy Davis Reader, told Smithsonian Magazine, quote, I was a little kid when this happened. Everybody talked about it. I do think it had an impact. It was one of those things in the 60s that was part of opening up American society a little bit. He and my Brit were pioneers in making America more accepting of interracial marriage. Sammy and Mai had three children together, but he performed constantly and he spent very little time with her. And their marriage ended in 1968 after Sammy had an affair with a dancer named Lola Falana. After that, Sammy started drinking a lot more. He did a lot of drugs. Uh, he started experimenting with Satanism and pornography. Wow. He actually traveled with trunks of pornographic videos. Listen, kids, you used to not have this little <laughs> rectangle that could show you titties all day long. Right. You had to bring a trunk of tapes with you everywhere you went. And you had to remember to rewind them. <laughs> or next time you'd be sitting there with your dick in your hand right. like, ah, crap, I can't. Oh. Hang on, now I gotta wait 30 seconds for this tape to rewind. Be kind, rewind. Yes, be kind to your future self. Rewind your porn when you're done with it. <laughs> yes. I guess. I, I mean, I mean, like DVDs came out when I was like 15. I was, I was gonna say, how many tapes of porn have you had to watch? <laughs> Internet porn was around, you know, early enough for Took for a guys long my time age. for them to download, though. Oh, man. <laughs> Many days you had yeah. to wait for one little webcam video. Next month, I'm going to have some blurry. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't know how good you have it, children. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he would travel with these trunks of pornographic videos, and one of the members of, an, of his entourage would sometimes steal the tapes and then charge bellboys at the hotel to oh, watch them. So he had his own little rental? Yeah. A little porn blockbuster going on the weird side? porno theater happening in this, <laughs> in this right. hotel somewhere? Later that year, Sammy became involved with an actress named Altavis Gore, who played his sister during the London run of the musical Golden Boy. And when he first invited her to join him in his suite, she was reluctant and told him, quote, they call you the carpenter because you nail every girl you meet. Oh, wow. That's, That's good. pretty good. That's good. But she did go. And in 1970, they got married. Oh. And she told Vanity Fair, quote, we loved each other very much. I was like a kid in a candy store and he wanted me to have the best. Then the late 60s and 70s were tough for Sammy. He performed at a fundraiser for Jesse Jackson, but he was booed when he came on stage. He sang one song and then left. After all the snubs from JFK, you know, maybe it's no surprise that Sammy supported Republican Richard Nixon for president in 1972. He performed for the troops to benefit Nixon's drug treatment program. And in 1973, Nixon invited him and Altavis to sleep in the White House in the Lincoln bedroom. They were the first black couple ever to do so. But later in life, Sammy said he regretted supporting Nixon because Nixon had made a lot of promises about civil rights that he didn't end up keeping. Mm -hmm. Surprise, surprise, Nixon, not a man of his word. Yeah, Nixon, a liar? <laughs> but his support of Nixon caused still more problems for Sammy within the black community. Vanity Fair wrote, quote, Cy Marsh believes that Davis had spent the first half of his career making himself loved by the white world and the second half trying to make himself loved by the black world. Which is very interesting to think about, just yeah. going from extremely white, very segregated, 40s, 50s, 60s, yeah. to, I mean, basically, in the especially in the 70s, it was very pro-black. I mean, that's even when they started saying, call me black, not, not colored or Negro or whatever the yeah. other words they used to use. They yeah. were like, black is good. Yeah. 
um, and wearing afros and African jewelry. Like it really became a whole movement. Yeah. And so it must have been such a weird like, you know, kind of feeling for black performers like Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah. who were like, well, the only way I could make money was to be, I mean, what did they say earlier? A black, a black symbol performing for white audiences. Right. Now that's making me look bad to my own community who mm-hmm. is like, stop catering to white people. Yeah. You know, it's about us now. Yeah. I have. I feel like that would be very weird. Yeah. Sammy would remain married to Altavis until his death from throat cancer in 1990. But he would see his former flame, Kim Novak, a couple more times. In 1979, he and Altavis went to the Academy Awards with Kim and the awards producer, Jack Haley. And Jack brought Kim to the Davis's house so they could all go to the awards together. And then he and Altavis like sat together in the living room and let Sammy and Kim talk privately in the kitchen for like about 45 minutes. Because this, of course, has been the first time they'd hung out in like over 20 years. Yeah. Since, yeah. Since the mom threatened to break his legs. (laughs) Right, right. So I think he was like, hey, how you been? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let's, uh, let's, let's have a moment. At the awards gala, Sammy and Kim danced together. And afterwards, Sammy was stunned, saying, quote, not one picture. Nobody even took one picture. 20 years before, when, you know, they had actually been dating, they would have been mobbed by the press, probably right. by a bunch of angry racists. Like, it yeah. would have just been a shit show. Yeah. So it was an insane to him that nobody even cared that he was dancing with Kim Novak. Right. Nobody looked at them twice. Wow. And it just demonstrated, like, nothing else how much the world had really changed. Yeah. So in 1990, when Sammy was dying of cancer at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in L.A., Kim Novak came to visit him. He knew she was coming, so he sent home for his beautiful silk pajamas and robes that he could see her while he was dressed to the nines. I love that. He's like, let me get dressed up Uh for my old girlfriend. Yeah. After he died, Kim's friend Shirley Rhodes says that Sammy's friend Murphy Bennett, one of his closest friends for 40 years, would visit Sammy's grave. Shirley said, quote, Murphy would always stop on the way and buy a white rose and leave it for Sammy from her because that's what Sammy always gave to Kim. And Murphy, he knew everything. A white rose. Yeah. I wonder if he called her his white rose. Oh, maybe so. like that. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that's beautiful. There's still a white rose on Sammy's grave. Right. For, from Kim. Right. Yeah, sweet, sweet story. Uh, I mean, I guess it. The, the two mean, of them tried to have a sweet story and right. everybody kept getting in the way. This is one of those situations where I get so frustrated with, well, it, it's both Hollywood and the Democratic government right? in this one. And it's because they keep falling back in this excuse of, well, people won't like it. Mm-hmm. And that's something that really drives me crazy in Hollywood that we saw for decades and decades and is only beginning to break down now oh, yeah. where they say, oh, audiences won't want to see a woman superhero. Oh, they won't want to see an interracial couple. Oh, they won't want to. They keep using that as an excuse when it's like you guys are the ones who decide what we want to see. Isn't the whole underlying rule of marketing that we tell you what you want? Right. Not the other way around. Yeah. And so. You're fine with that when it comes to selling cigarettes or bacon or whatever. Mm-hmm. But when something comes up that's racially different, you're like, oh, well, no, my hands are tied. Right. I got to do what the consumer wants. I'm like, no, no, no. You already said you tell the consumer what they want. So it's your job yeah. to show that, to give that representation mm-hmm. so that it, it normalizes it for everyone else and they stop thinking such crazy thoughts. Yeah. 
It's Wait, literally I mean, it's your job just as, in entertainment. Yeah. Fully a scapegoat because yeah. they don't want to be like, I don't like it. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to see a lady superhero. Yeah. I don't want to see that shit. Yeah. But I mean, we talked about this in Lucy and Desi, right? Yeah. Because it was like, you can't show a pregnant lady. Uh-huh. They can, you know, whatever it was. It's always some dumb shit. Right. And then it's like, as soon as you put it on TV, maybe there's a kick up for a minute. Uh-huh. But it usually goes away pretty quickly. You know, most people who watch movies have a lot of shit going on uh-huh. in their lives, okay? <laughs> they got to work. They got right. kids. I got to clean out the car. They right. don't have time to be mad, <laughs> mad about an interracial couple in a movie. Well, they did find time sometimes, they but sure still, did. it's like screw them. Like what? So what? Right, they'll, and, they'll and get yeah, over why it. cater to the worst impulses exactly. of everybody? Why then, not cater to the best impulses and be like, you catch up with us? Yeah, and JFK too. Oh, I don't want to alienate Southern Democrats oh. who are racist. Why don't you go to those Southern Democrats and say, hey, you know, we can get a lot more done if you guys stop being racist. Here, let me show you an example of how you don't have to be racist. These guys are cool. They give us money. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for them. So why don't you chill out about it? Mm -hmm. And they'd probably be like, you know, a bunch of them would be like, I'm angry because I like to be angry. And then a bunch of them would be like, all right, you're right. Okay. well, I guess by the time the, you know, 10 years go by, we'll all have gotten over it and be cool now. Well, it's a really good case study for how, I mean, Democrats lie to progressive yeah. voters yeah. and especially to minority voters. Right. Because, right. you know, JFK was straight up campaigning. I will sign a civil rights act. It's my number one thing. Yeah. Actually didn't really care about that at all. Mm-hmm. And he was very much more focused on foreign policy. He wanted yeah. that kind of. I mean, platform, I guess, right. was more about international affairs mm-hmm. or whatever. So he kept pushing that, pushing that away, pushing that to the side, pushing yeah. it to the side. After the March on Washington, MLK even went to seat. JFK was like, what a great protest y'all did. Everybody's look, eyes of the world on you. Come uh-huh. see me. And they had like a meeting where they were like laying out like, hey, we want black people should be promoted to managerial positions. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like little shit like that that we hadn't even got to yet. Right. And. I mean, it was just a whole bunch of like, you guys are doing so great out there, sweetie. Like, we definitely are listening. Uh-huh. We definitely are listening. And like, we'll get to that at some point. Uh huh. You know? And I, I think it's around that time that MLK said, you know, why do you get to put a timeline on another man's liberty? Right. Stop telling me to be patient. Yes. You know? And I, I can feel that because especially if you're black in America, you've been told to be patient for an extremely long time. Yes. Like, how much more patient can you get? <laughs> Your great, 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 great grandchildren will almost definitely have it a little bit better. Just wait. <laughs> so, yep. yeah, it's I frustrating. It's such an interesting story because it really encompasses so many things. I mean, of course, we're talking about white racism, but also, I mean, the black community also having issues with Sammy Davis Jr., yeah. which, of course, I'm not going to try to explain. <laughs> right. I mean, I don't know, but... It's, I think there's a lot of that now where people are like, are you black enough, quote unquote? Right. Are you acting white, quote unquote, or whatever? Who gets to decide, you know, right. whose community you belong to, which is better, whatever? Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I wish I was a little better at talking about that. I don't know. There was a cool play in Atlanta a couple of years back that we saw called Black Nerd. It's written by John Carr, mm-hmm. um, who's an awesome Atlanta native theater producer who's now in Chicago heading up Second City. So cool um, that he got awesome. that's a dope job. Yes. Uh, but uh, that was a really cool show that was sort of about that, you know, about mm-hmm. this this guy who was, uh, you know, he liked Marvel and Comic-Con and stuff like that. And he yeah. was a total nerd. And some of his friends, you and know, family, thought, yeah. and his family, yeah, mm-hmm. was like, you're not 
you're not black enough. In what the are you way white? That, you like that yeah. science fiction or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. That was just, again, not, not uh, for us to extrapolate too much on, but just that it was a, it was the first time I'd been shown sort of that side. Like, oh, that's, that's an interesting, mm-hmm. uh, yet another thing that some black people have to go through. Right. You know? Yeah. This is just a whole uh, concept about race being a race traitor. Oh, right, right, um, which right. Which is total nonsense. But Sammy Davis Jr. and Kim would have probably both been seen as race traitors. By some, yeah. Just getting it from all sides, kind of. Yeah. And I think that's really the, the core of it is just for us, at least, for, for white people, mm-hmm. uh, just being aware that this is, this doesn't turn off. No. You know, this never, this to a large degree doesn't stop. And it's something that affects, you know, your life in a way that I can't understand because mm-hmm. I read about it and I go, oh my God, that's so tough. I can, but then I stop reading about it. You know, then right. I go and on about my, my life, life and I walk down the street and everything is in, in my view, normal, like I'm used to. And I don't have to, I don't have to be thinking about it constantly, Right. but some people it's part of every decision that they make. Right. Well, and um, I think it shows too, like how much what you're doing has to be put in context of white people. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. So I don't know. It must be so frustrating to be like, I'm just trying to live. You know, like he said, why won't you let me live my life? Like, yeah. I just want to live my life. There's nowhere I can go that yeah. everyone's happy with me. So, yeah, just being aware, like, take it. That's kind of what I take from this story is like, yes, of course, things are better now than they were back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was insane to me that 60 years ago, these two people who loved each other couldn't even be seen in public together. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly not the case now. But you can extrapolate from this story, I think what's still there you know what's left over and what hasn't been scrubbed yet and and the number of people who still feel that way they're Mm -hmm. still out there that was a generation ago you know there's still plenty of adults now who were raised to think this way by the people who lived during that time Mm -hmm. so i think it's foolish to think that again that there aren't black people all over the country still dealing with circumstances a lot like this, if not so egregious and obvious, yeah. but still really making their lives more challenging. And that's not fair. No. I don't like that. It's not the world I want to live in. No. Um, so I hope that, you know, this story we're telling is valuable in that context in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope that you took something from it as well. I certainly did. And uh, we'd love to hear from you about it. Always. Uh, absolutely. Please give us any sort of uh, feedback you like about the episode uh, anything you thought if, you, if you're if you a big fan of Sammy Davis Jr.'s music that yeah. which I can recommend the track Sweet Gingerbread Man by Sammy Davis Jr. oh which was just in a lovely Christmas song <laughs> was just in Hawkeye it sure was which is great are you guys loving Hawkeye come on why is Hawkeye good oh my god Hawkeye totally so is so good Anyway. Also, Spider Man. We're not going to get into it, but we did see it. We, so yes. anyway, we're freaking out. I'm not. We're not here to talk about Spider Man, no. but I will, and I only want to, to struggle <laughs> to focus on this story and not just be like, "Well, Spider Man and Kim Novak." Oops, <laughs> <laughs> Spider Man Junior and Kim Novak. <laughs> but please uh, shoot us a message. We'd love to hear from you. You can get us at romance at iheartmedia.com. Right, or we're on social media on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Dianamite Boom. And I'm at Oh Great, It's Eli. And the show is at Ridic Romance. We look forward to hearing from you soon, and we will catch you at the next episode. Can't wait. Thanks for hanging out with us. Bye-bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. 
Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts the black effect presents family therapy and i'm your host elliot connie Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.